0: Colonialism has, you know, created this systemic violence that exists not just in indigenous communities, but in any community that's been colonized, right? So while the characters themselves, I think, have villainous aspects to them, um, the, true, the true villain that we have to take down is, the, uh, uh, is colonialism, <laughs>
1: I'm Jordan Kissner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Morgan Talty is a writer from the Penobscot Indian nation in Maine. His debut book of short stories, Night of the Living Res, is its one of my favorite books works of fiction that I've read in a really long time. Uh, It's short stories that follow one particular family unit living on the Penobscot Reservation. And in particular, it follows David, who's the young son of the family. We meet him when he's a little boy with this intense desire to be good amidst some family circumstances like drug use and poverty and intergenerational trauma that sometimes make that hard for him. And then in later stories, we meet David again as an adult. This book is just full of tender and difficult and compelling people who love each other and hurt each other kind of in equal measure. And so I was really excited to talk to Morgan about writing a book based on the place where he comes from and also his desire to write stories where maybe bad things happen, maybe people do bad things, but there are no clear villains. This is Morgan Talty.
0: My mom and my sister were, were drinking and, uh, there was this guy there is they called him little big man who was this little short guy and he uh (laughs) he said something cruel to my mother or something like that and my sister (laughs) my sister um because my mom and my sister always fought like they just like they fought terribly and you know, this is just this perfect example, I think, of you know, like loving somebody who like you are constantly, you know, at odds with. And my sister goes, <laughs> sister goes, you don't talk to my mother that way. And she punched him right in the face so hard that he like went fl- like it was like a movie. It was like the Matrix. Like he just went flying and he <clears throat> like hit like hit the wall and he like slid down at like a cartoon character. And he's, and she's like, don't ever talk about my mother like that again. So this whole, like, I was like trying to think of like, like an incident, (laughs) like, like that was the only story that I kept coming back to was this moment where my sister, who was probably arguing with my mother before all of this, just sort of like, (laughs) you know, defends her, right? Like, you know, like, regardless of (laughs) what, what had happened.
1: Did he did did he just go away? Like what? How did that uh,
0: play out? He got up. He's like, oh, I'm sorry, Carol. I'm sorry, Carol. And, you know, then my mother's name was Carol, and then I think they just went on with their night. I was kind of just like wide eyed, um, but then like like I was just used to stuff like that, so I was just like, all right, well, I'm gonna go back to playing, you know, video game or whatever it was, like playing with my toys or something. Um, <laughs> it was just yeah. It, I I have always sort of laughed at I, I, my whole me my sister my mom you know we've always used humor as a means to cope with traumatic you know moments and like that's a traumatic thing to see as a child like you know your sister hit a guy so hard he flies into the wall you know what i mean like like that's like dysfunctional um but we just laughed at it um and we still laugh about it and, and I mean, I, I can't remember the last time my sister and I talked about that story, but I know when we did, we you know thought it was funny. My mother was like most mothers, you know, fiercely protective, fiercely, um, you know, in you know in love with her her children and cared so much about them, um, but she was also equally destructive um, in in you know strange in 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 ways that people can be, you know, she suffered from, you know, childhood abuse. She suffered from, um, you know, alcoholism and, um, she had quite a temper, (laughs) um, you know, never in the way that, you know, it it was ever, you know, taken out on me, you know, but maybe verbally. Um, but she was just an explosive person. Um, and I really feel like, like, my mother was the type of person who you just like did not like mess with either like physically (laughs) or, or like verbally, she just had this very quick witted nature to her. And she was so good at spinning stories. Um, She was so good at just like adopting different, you know, perspectives and personalities to get what she wanted. Um, And so like growing up, you know, seeing her and, you know, being at the receiving end of of her you know some of her afflictions you know i i was always nervous i was always a very nervous kid um and you know she in the environment i was in also wasn't um also wasn't one that uh made me feel <laughs> better but um that sort of anxiety you know i think made me very sensitive to people's emotions and maybe how they were feeling. And, you know, as I got older, um, you know, I, and, and when I started writing, you know, I was very much interested in emotions because that was what, you know, I constantly was thinking about growing up and having to navigate, you know, strange situations. It's like, how do I, you know, tiptoe around this? How do I approach it head on an issue? Right. You know, maybe my mother's alcoholism, how do I talk to her about this, um, you know, why am I not talking to her about this? Um, And so I was always just super sensitive and super aware to how people felt, and how that feeling affected situations. Um, And I feel like that was like my greatest lesson when it comes to writing, like to thinking about stories and constructing situations and, and moments where, you know, the reader recognizes, oh, this is this is real life, you know what I mean, like,' sure, it's fiction, but this is like this is truth,
1: yeah, that's something I can really see in David, the character in Night of the Living Res. like David, especially the David that we see as a as a young boy, is so alert and so sensitive all the time, and there's this really interesting. Tension between how much David perceives, and then because of his age, sometimes he doesn't understand precisely what he's perceiving, you know, like, but he's so, so sensitive to the emotional undercurrents in the room. Um, And to me, it felt like it felt like a really beautiful and just true encapsulation of what it feels like to be a sensitive kid, a kid like who's really really paying attention to how how emotions are moving. Um, and I, how did you think about translating that experience that you had had as a as, you know sensitive attuned younger person into this character even just technically, how do you think about um, recreating that? Emotional experience on the
0: page. I wrote. I don't know how many. I mean, David. Obviously, you know, when I very f- first started writing, you know, thirteen years ago, David was myself. <laughs> you know, um, but over the years, it sort of he turned into somebody else. Um, you know, this own person, but nonetheless, still has that same quality I had as a child. Um, you know, that was sensitive and was you know worried um, and was also super aware of their surroundings um, and it it was kind of difficult to make it was kind of difficult to work with David um as a boy and as the narrator um because one of the you know interesting things is you know we want you know with first person narrators they're they're supposed to be unreliable, right you know um and especially if you have a child narrating a story um or telling the story, like we have to think about, you know, what the narrator brings moment to moment beyond the immediate knowledge of the character. Um, so we think about reflection, we think about age, right. Um, but those stories with David, he's, he's just a boy and we don't, we maybe get some quick glimpses of, you know, a narrator who's much older, you know, thinking about these moments, but they're very, very rare. Um, and so with David, you know, one of the, not one of the criticisms, but one of the concerns somebody gave, told me about, about the book was, uh, with David, he felt too pure, like he felt too good um, and you know we think traditionally about fiction, and it's like characters are supposed to be flawed, you know, characters are, are, are we so or so we hear right they're supposed to be flawed, they're supposed to be you know like bad in some way, right um, but like David, to me, you know like he's so he's so good natured that like I felt like you know, thinking creatively, it's like, okay, well, how can I make him bad? It's kind of like, I don't want to, right? Like this boy is, you know, like I feel like that's so important to him as a character, that he is good natured, that he is, you know, I guess quote, well behaved, right? That he's, you know, doing the, you know, the absolute best. Um, and I feel like that problem went away when D entered the picture, when we look at David as an as an older older person, right? Because then we can get into some some uh areas of flaws and immorality and things like that. Um but it, in the very beginning when it was just David and mainly David, it was such a it was such a hard thing to balance, right? It's like I don't want to make this child bad, right? We want children to be good and and we want, you know, them to be observable and and and, and David ended up being I feel like both of those and and I really tried to stick to that as best I could.
1: It's so interesting that you got the note to make David more unreliable or sort of more flawed in some way. Because it just, first of all, like, I don't know, he's little. Like, I don't, (laughs) like, kids are, I don't know that this is true all the time, but it just felt so believable to me that, like, a kid at that age is just doing his best. He just kind of wants to be loved, and he has... Good intentions, and he's a little anxious, and he's just trying hard um and that then creates this sort of tragic dialogue between he- David and d older david who's who's like a much more complicated in some ways much more damaged person um how did d come to
0: you um yeah, so d D, I stumbled into D. I didn't, (laughs) um, I set out, I was like, all right, I'm going to write a collection of stories and they're all going to be told from David's perspective. They're going to start with him as a boy, um, you know, as we see him in a jar and it's going to end with the story night of the living res, uh, where he's much older. And the parameters I set around this was there are going to be stories that stand alone, but they just move chronologically that they go, you know, he just gets older and older and older um and night of the living Res was the first story i actually wrote for this this book um and then i wrote in a jar and then i started to try to go chronologically in order and i wrote like 15 or 16 stories all from david's perspective um and i finished this manuscript and i'm like this sucks i was like like this is like it like there were you know four three four five stories that were good right and you know in a publishable publishable quality but as a collection as a book I was like what is it doing and it really wasn't doing anything it was just it had this chronological arc in individual stories and I was like well I don't know what to do and I was like whatever I'm going to just stop I'm not going to do um I'm done with this collection like it's just it, it failed it didn't do it didn't live up to what I wanted it to do and a friend had visited me and he was telling me this story that he heard from a guy um that he heard from a guy uh, and the guy apparently was crossing this bridge in winter. And at the other end of the bridge, there was this native guy. Um, I don't know if he was Penobscot. He was, he was a Penobscot or Passamaquoddy in, in Maine. And um, he was in the snowbank, and his hair was frozen in the snow. And um, the guy was telling my friend, he was like, he was like, I was drunk, he was drunk. And he was like, and he he told me to cut his hair. And so the way the guy explained it to my friend, he's like, I'm just this, you know, white guy right here cutting this Indian's hair off to save his life. And I'm looking over my shoulder for cars or cops or something. And um, I just thought the story was absolutely hilarious. Because, you know, we think of that narrative of, you know, cutting an indigenous person's hair, and it's, you know, associated with scalping and that, traumatic history but here is this moment where it's being done to literally save somebody's life right like because they could not get free without having cut the hair i mean i guess you probably could have like chipped the snow away but if you read burn you obviously that, that doesn't work um and so i was like i'm gonna write that as a story so i had this name in my head over and over and over again for months even when i was writing the collection um and it was Fellas. I just kept hearing Fellas And so I was like, okay, I'm going to make Fellas be the guy who's in the snow. And so I write this story, Burn, which is the opener to the collection. And I'm writing from this older perspective of this, this character who I don't know who it is. Um, and I get to the line that says, um, uh, what is it? It says, uh, get me out, D, Fellas said. D, get me out. And when I got to that that line, when I was drafting that line, uh, my instinct was to say David because I had been writing for, you know, a year and a half from David's perspective. And I was like, I don't know what this character's name is. So I just put the letter D in as a placeholder. And so I finished the story, revised it, and it just came back down to figuring out, okay, well, what do I name this guy? Like, what is his name? Mike Bob? You know, like, w- what is this character's name? And the more I looked at it and I just started saying D, 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 and then I realized, I was like, wait a minute. His name is D. It's D with two E's. And then I was like, wait a minute. I was like, is this David grown up? Mm-hmm. And right then I was, I realized, I was like, my collection is coming back to life. <laughs> like I had found um, you know, by pursuing something different, I had found a way to complicate the collection and complicate this family's life. And then it began then it became a, a journey of figuring out who D was, what happened to him, um, and this back and forth sort of like dialogue between David and D, and, and reshaping these stories so they they matched um, in the way that they do. Um, so it was so D D came out by accident, um, and I'm fortunate that I I found him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How did you think about drawing? Like did so. Did, it sounds sort of like D appeared to you a little bit, kind of fully drawn, um, or like as as a character that that was himself and not necessarily initially as like an a, an outgrowth of David. How did you think about putting drawing the line between these two people? Like something that I was thinking about a lot when I was reading the. The book was like, how did, how does David become D and where is David inside D? And I have to imagine that those are questions that you were, you were also grappling with. How did you, how did you approach that?
0: Yeah, I think, um, I didn't put a lot of, um, I didn't really put a lot of thought into like how the, how it happened, like how David became D and you know, what still remains in but still remains of David and D. You know, I focused on the stories. I focused on D, who he was at that time. Um, but as I started to put the collection together, um, I, you know, it's... W- with short stories in general, you know, they, they tend to get... They tend to draw their power from what's left out, um, from what's, you know, not said. And I kind of think of this as like, all the David stories is just like one long Short story, maybe right, and then D is like all one long story, and then there's this disconnect between them, right? There's there's something that's not said, and so when it came, I had to I had to think about that question. I'm like, how did you know D become D, right? Like, what happened? Um, And I think you know, as the reader is reading, and I don't know if you had this experience, but you know, the more the more you get into the stories, the more I hoped that readers would be like, what happened, right? Like, what you know, like the stories are satisfying, I hope, you know, and they're doing, you know, they're, they're standing on their own, but there's this question of this nagging question that's not overbearing, but it's, it's there. It's like, what happened? Like, how did this happen? And I didn't ever really want to say how it happened. Um, but I wanted to create a moment that would, um, perhaps define this, this moment. And that is, you know, the culmination of the story "Night of the Living Res" where it ends, right? There's this, mm-hmm. you know that that ending. You know, I think when I read it, I go, "No wonder D came to life." <laughs> um, like, no wonder this happened. Um, and it sort of, for me, it accounts for, you know, it, it's the explanation I think in my mind for those D stories existing and for D being who he is. And also, I think you know, D's trajectory, right? Because we get towards the end and he sort of comes back to himself, right? Um I'm thinking of Earth Speak, and he he kind of, you know, gets better in a sense. Um and he even comes back I think even his mom in that last story he said calls him by his by his name. He call, she calls him David. Um and it's the first um, story in the whole D, D stories where he's ever called David, um, and so he kind of comes back to himself a little bit there. So I did really think about these these ideas of you know how did they get to where they were, um, in trying to you know flesh that out and make it you know so the reader understood um, either indirectly or with you know direct you know examples.
1: Yeah, I feel like we're sort of coming to a question that I was also circling when I was reading the book, which is, representations of trauma and intergenerational trauma um, that are that are in some ways universal in the sense that intergenerational trauma happens happens everywhere to to everyone and yet it also feels like the rep, the the portrait of that here feels really really localized it feels like specifically a portrait of a Penobscot family um, dealing with their their, their inheritance, um, and the way that that kind of spins, spins out through each of them. And we see that most explicitly, or maybe most just thoroughly in the David, the David to D story, but it's, but you also really show the way that that's, that's true of his mother and his sister and, and kind you know, kind of every fellas and every character in this world. Um, how did you conceive of the way that you wanted to kind of create that architecture of both love and wounding for this world? Um, either, you know, technically or just like personally and emotionally for yourself. What was that? What was that creation process like for you?
0: Um, I feel like it was it can be difficult at times. I mean, my whole approach to fiction, um, you know, what I love to see in fiction is that there's dark, there's darkness, but we somehow have to see the light in it. Um, and, And growing up for me, you know, from all the things I've seen, from all the things I've experienced, like, the love that was shared between me and my mother and my father and um, her boyfriend and my sister um, and my family, you know, it was, it was that, it was that love. It was that caring nature that kept us alive in a sense. Um, Right. We, we held each other up, even when we were, even when people were at their worst, even when my mother was, you know, had her drinking at her, was drinking at, you know, the most when my sister was also, you know, struggling with addiction, like I thought it was so important never to give up on them, regardless of how much, you know, how many issues, you know, their afflictions created. And so in this book, I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to just create a, you know, a cast of people and be like, oh, look, they suffer, you know, and make, you know, and like, that's it, right? Like, I wanted to be like, yeah, they suffer, but look at the ways they love each other. Look at the ways they care for each other. Look at the ways they, you know, argue with each other, but nonetheless, at the end of the day, will, you know, sit down and smoke a cigarette with you and and talk and, you know, (laughs) drink coffee or, you know what I mean? Like, like, it's those things that I feel make characters unique and important. Um, it's drawing out, yeah, <laughs> you've done some terrible stuff, but I have to love you for like, I, st- I have to love you. Like life is precious. If I give up on that, then I've, then I feel like I failed as a human. Um, and so, you know, thinking about David and D and Paige and mom and Frick and, you know, the terrible things that happen there, it's like, how do we transcend that, right? Like, how do we come to forgive, you know, even the most atrocious things? Can we forgive those things? You know, it's, it's like, how can, how can you quote, you know, quote, unquote, hate somebody, but still love them, right? Um, So there's all these paradoxes or, or dichotomies, I feel that like, I was constantly up against, but it always came back, to this thing. It's like, I need to make these characters love one another at the end of the day, even if, even if they've had the most violent fight, right? Like they, they need each other.
1: Right. And they're, and they're whole and complex people. Like I I was really noticing about the character Frick, who's mom's boyfriend, but like longtime boyfriend that he has a lot of qualities that in Maybe like lesser fiction would, would sort of signal him out to be like the bad mom's boyfriend, right? Like he has a drinking problem. He, you know, whatever. Um, but he, there's so much care taken to show that he is tender and he is loving and he, you know, he always brings David's backpack in from the truck and that, that there's this real wholeness. Given to each person who is, you know has some combination of afflictions and flaws and strength and tenderness. and um and that kind of allows this complexity of their selves, but also just of the relationships between them of need and love and frustration and hurt and loyalty and all those things
0: yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, I think Frick. Is I remember very early on, you know, when readers, when I had my readers read, um, you know, the stories, they were like, "Oh, Frick's going to be a great villain," and <laughs> you know, I, I never, I never really saw him as a villain. I, I just saw him um, as Frick. I saw him as this guy who had good qualities, bad qualities, and this monstrous quality. Um, you know that I won't really talk about because I think folks, folks will see that in the book. Um, Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's also, you know, it's not just his quality, but I also think it's more representative of representative of men in general. Right. Um, I think, um, you know, so it's, it's, I never really think of anybody in this collection as being, you know, the, you know, I think of everybody as being protagonists and everybody also simultaneously being antagonists.
1: Yeah. I think that's right. It's, yeah, it's funny. Frick, I think maybe that's what I, what I meant when I was talking before. Like he's, my first thought was, oh, this is going to be the villain. And then I kept being, and then he kept not being a villain. You know, there was no, there's no, well, actually maybe I should formulate that as a question. Do you think there's a villain in this book? Does this, or in this sort of set of stories, does this world have a villain?
0: That's a great question. Um, <laughs> i don't I don't know. I'm tempted to say no, but I'm also tempted to say yes. like I feel like I feel like the like the villain here, it, like in certain situations, there are villains, right? If we think about um, you know, the blessing tobacco, right? It's like you know, is you know the grandmother the villain, is you know the mom the villain, you know, in these specific moments. I think in a more larger, in a a larger overarching sense, I feel like the villain, the main villain is colonialism. Um, You know, what has sort of wreaked havoc on, you know, this, I don't want to say this community because it only focuses on one family and fellas and and his mom. So, um, you know, but colonialism has, you know, created this systemic violence that exists not just in indigenous communities but in any community that's been colonized right so while the characters themselves i think have villainous aspects to them um the true the true villain that we have to take down is the uh uh is colonialism
1: (laughs) yeah which i mean that's that's that feels clear and also feels like a challenge because that's such for you as the writer, because that's a, that's a nebulous victim. That victim doesn't have a specific face in, in this book or, or I don't know, maybe, I don't i uh, maybe in the world. I don't know. There's not like a, a one single vanquishable entity there. It's a, it's like a system and an idea and a history. Um, which is so much more diffuse than like had Frick just been your villain.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I could have made it easier on myself, but I I chose not to. Um, but I think it, it is difficult. And I think that's, what's so important right now about literature is, is that especially indigenous literature is there's like this emergence of so many indigenous stories that are coming, you know, to, um, mainstream literature, like, um, Like this is the, I'll say this is the second time. There's a novel that came out by Gregory Brown called The Lowering Days, which is a lovely novel. Um, he's a Maine writer, and uh, it's set. his story's set in Maine, and he has um Penobscot characters in it and Penobscot language and stuff. He's non-native, um, and the book he did a great job with that book and handling indigenous characters. But, um, I think Night of the Living Res is the first book by a Penobscot person that represents Penobscot people in like mainstream literature that's like getting out there and like we need more like people we need more stories from tribes that are you know that people don't even like know like exist right like people think of if you ask people to name some tribes they're like oh Navajo, Mohawk, um, Comanche, um, you know, they, if you ask somebody in California, if they've ever heard of Penobscot, they're going to be like, I have no idea what that is, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's over 500 federally recognized tribes, you know, there's and even more if you count state recognized and unrecognized. So that's a lot of cultures that's, you know, in the United States. And it's like, I feel like the more voices we get out there, um, the more that works, the more voices we get out there, the more pieces of literature that perhaps are attacking this idea of colonization, right? Like drawing attention to it, you know, I think we'll have a better chance at, you know, creating a face of what, you know, this looks like, right? Like actually being able to confront this villain, right? That's not just unique in this book, but unique in, I think, any work by a minority that's writing against, um, you know, a white male dominated um, vision of what literature is supposed to be.
1: The question I want to ask you has something to do. I'm trying to figure out a non-stupid way to ask this question. I
0: like like when questions sound stupid. Really?
1: Okay, cool. Let me do my, let me do my best here. It, (laughs) it, It sounds like what a, what a, what a, genuinely unique experience you're having being the first writer who is Penobscot writing about Penobscot people to kind of hit mainstream American, you know, big publishing. Um, What is that? What does that experience feel like to you? Is it something you're thinking about very much?
0: It is. Yeah. I mean, I've been like my, like, I am like really invested in other writers. I'm very invested in, in supporting other artists. And like, I am just hoping, you know, that in the next, you know, five, you know, whenever at some point, you know, that there is, you know, another Penobscot writer, you know, publishing a novel or, or a story collection. Right. And like, I, like, I, I, I think about this quite a lot. Like, I want to be in a position someday, right, where I can you know, maybe somehow financially support, you know, writers from the Penobscot nation to pursue, you know, their work in in storytelling, um, be it, you know, fiction, be it, you know, screenwriting, you know, plays, all of these different things. And so like it, it was it's really important to me to you know, think about that future, right? Like I th- sure, I think about my work. I think about my art and and what it tries to do, but I also have a responsibility, you know, to lift up other artists, especially artists from my community. Um, and so like that's that I think about a lot. And not just not just for the sake of having more, you know, like Penobscot writers and you know um, Penobscot voices out there, well, I guess to have that actually, yeah. Um, be- because if we look at Night of the Living Res, it's only a sliver of, you know, this community. Um, and I always I always get a bit, I don't want to say defensive or, I-, I don't quite know what the word is, but when people describe the book as like, you know, a Penobscot experience, like I, right. I, I, re- I recoil a little bit because this is not every Penobscot person's experience. Um, and that's why we need, that's why I want to help uplift other writers' voices, you know, from our community. You know, I want to get to a point in my career where I'm able to do that, um, and you know, have the time to do that because that's it's it's the it, you know it's the cacophony of voices that define you know it's this intersubjectivity that we get m- these multiple voices that create a clearer image of what something is, and that's what I want, and I, and I think about that you know very often. when
1: we first started talking you were telling me that um you've been kind of going through what feels like a change with your writing in the last year or so since your mom died and i was wondering if you would you feel comfortable telling me about that
0: yeah um i you know i where to start with this? Um, you know, when, when my mom died, I mean, I'm still feeling the effects of it. I mean, it was, you know, she was, you know, I, she was everything to me. Um, even through all of the bad stuff that, you know, the things that made her, you know, if someone only knew that about her, they'd be like, Oh, wow. You know, she's terrible. Um, but she wasn't, she was a loving mother. She was funny. She was fun. She was great. She had her faults, sure. But um, losing her just it it still is it's it's hard to contemplate um not having her and and it's interesting as a lot of my anxiety um about specific things have, has gone away because like she sort of kept them alive, um, you know, about you know she she didn't have a lot of money, you know, we didn't grow up with a lot of money, you know, so she was, you know, even these past eight years you know I was always giving her money I was always buying her cigarettes you know her car broke down I had to fix it you know so it was this very like different type of relationship like I was in many ways taking care of her um which she even knew you know she would say this isn't how it's supposed to be um but you know now that she's gone you know I always I never wanted to write about my mother I never wanted to well I did but I never wanted to publish things about her um, because I never wanted to hurt, hurt her. Um, and now that she's gone, you know, I'm like working on essays about f- like more nonfiction stuff about families, our family, you know, my mom and my sister. Um, and like, I have this like, this sort of like freedom I feel now to not, this freedom to not write about her badly, right, but to like write about her honestly and to write about myself honestly. Um, and like that, you know, i I would never be able to do that if if she were alive, and that sounds strange and and um, it's sort of almost like bad to say, right? But um, like that, like her death has paved this this long road that you know, I'm, I'm on, you know, writing wise and can see, and I'm just, it, it, it's gotten me to start walking down that road, um, you know, to think about, I think humanity, to think about the ones we love who can be difficult to love, um, and who for many people will just, you know, Never talk to because they're too hard to love. They're too hard to be around, um, and yeah. So I just feel much more. I have this this strange sense of freedom, um, which is good, but also super terribly sad because I don't have this person anymore in my life.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, there's. It doesn't. Su- it doesn't sound weird for what it's worth. It doesn't sound weird to me at all to th- to think that it might be easier to write about her in a way that is more honest or more complex or maybe more truly honors who she was in your relationship to her, knowing now that you can't accidentally hurt her with, with that complexity or something like that. Um, it, it sort of ties back to what you were saying earlier about this fictional family you were writing about, which is that they have to be allowed to be everything that they are, um, which is sometimes flawed and sometimes hurt and sometimes wonderful and sometimes tender and so- and and very bound by all the things that bind people not just the, the nice things. I don't know, it's hard to write about family like that.
0: Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you ever watched this, the TV show Superstore no um, I
1: didn't I remember it they, I, I didn't watch it
0: yeah there's this, there's this moment where they get there's a blizzard and they have to stay the night in the store and like all of the workers are in this like little circle and they're like they're all basically fighting or whatever and they're like picking at each other's faults or whatever and then this customer chimes in and he's like oh, something like she says some, he says something about the way like one of the workers choose <laughs> like it's super loud and then everyone is like who are you And they're like, you know, they, they do that exact same thing you just said. They're like, um, (laughs) they're like, they're like, you don't have a right to, you know, you know, pick on this, you know, this person, like that's us who get to do that. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, I just actually watched that episode. So that's why it was on my mind.
1: I wonder if that's like, the thing that that's making me think about is the fact that when you're a person who is trying to write honestly about your family for someone who's not your family. It can sometimes feel like you're becoming that, that person who's on, who's, or you're opening them up to those people on the outside. And that, like, there's a, there's a, a fear of disloyalty sometimes. Like, you're, but like, the, that the bargain you've made as a family is that, um, you can be as, you know, dysfunctional or whatever, or angry with each other as you want, but, but you're bound by a kind of loyalty that means that you turn on anyone from the outside who tries to kind of pick a fight. And something that, I don't know, that I worry about when I'm thinking about writing about people I love, and that I, I know other people do too, is this fear that you're somehow like breaking the, the pact. You're breaking that, that agreement that you have with each other that feels actually kind of really... A, important in some way. It just is making me think of this this change that you're thinking about or that you're experiencing with your writing um now that you're trying to write in a different way about your mom.
0: Yeah, I mean you're totally right. I mean to write, you know, to write about you and your family and that dysfunctional, you know, if if dysfunction is part of it, like to get at the heart of it, like you have to be in it. You have to be an insider, obviously, right? But you also have to take the stance of an outsider, right? And you have to, and, and that obviously comes across, right? Because, like, to do justice to anything, you have to look at it from every possible angle you can. And unfortunately, one of those angles is, you know, being an outsider, being, you know, disassociating yourself from that family, which, you know, I mean, you know, when if family members read, you know, an essay collection about the family, they might be like, I can't believe, you know, he you know, said this about us, right? Or I can't believe he, you know, told this story, right? But for me, it's always, it's never been about, like, exploiting, you know, this quote-unquote sellable material, but rather trying to find, like, some way to bring us even closer through it, if that makes sense. Mm
1: Threshold is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar, Strauss, and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week.